0: Welcome to
1: the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal to help you lead like never before, in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode 419 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I am very excited to have Brett Hagler as my guest today. Brett Leeds' new story, the 1st nonprofit to launch out of Y Combinator. And if those words mean anything to you, you know exactly how significant that is. And if not, well, uh, you're going to really enjoy this. But if you like innovation, uh, Y Combinator, by the way, incubated companies like Airbnb, Dropbox, Coinbase, Reddit, and DoorDash, just to name a few. And uh, yeah, Brett tells us all about it, what it was like, what innovation is about. And I'm so excited for it. This episode is brought to you by our partners at World Vision. Um, Your soul care is so important. They have a free web series with Danielle Strickland. They'd love for you to check out. Go to worldvision.org forward slash carry. And by Generis, you can schedule your free generosity pulse report today, an exclusive offer for listeners of this podcast by going to generis.com forward slash carry. Well, Brett is the CEO and co-founder of New Story. He is also the co-founder of Home Team Ventures, an early stage venture capital firm. Brett is a Y Combinator alum, as I've indicated. He's been recognized on Forbes' 30 under 30 list. And his company was named among Fast Company's most innovative companies in the world in 2017, 2019, and 2020. In five years, New Story has raised more than $60 million and built over 3,000 homes in 25 communities. And in 2019, they started printing 3D homes In Mexico with their partner, Icon, as the world's first 3D printed community. I was so intrigued when I heard about this, Brett reached out to me. He's been a longtime listener of the podcast and we have a bunch of mutual friends. And so we met at South by Southwest a couple of years ago and uh, I was speaking there. He was there and I toured a 3D printed home. Crazy, like unbelievable. You would live there. Like it's amazing to see what they're doing now for a world that really needs housing. And uh, it's a super cool conversation. So I think you're going to love this. And a shout out to all the young entrepreneurs. I'm meeting more and more of you young entrepreneurs in your 20s, 30s. uh, A lot of you Silicon Valley-based, startup-based who are listening to this podcast. Uh, Welcome. We're so glad to have you. And of course, the usual mix of church leaders and various leaders and corporate leaders. Just so glad to have you along on this podcast. You know, this has been an incredibly difficult season, no matter what you're doing. And uh, if you want to take care of your soul, our partner, World Vision, they are called to serve the most vulnerable around the world, but they also feel called to serve you as leaders. And that includes caring for you. So they partnered with my friend, Danielle Strickland, to provide a practical resource called Soul Care Prayer Postures. It's a free web series, And Danielle has talked about some of this stuff. Now she's got it together. She's talked about it on the show. Now she's got it together for World Vision. It's free. And uh, this can care for your soul, give you very practical tools to make sure you start off your day or end your day well. And you can sign up for free by going to worldvision.org forward slash carry. That's worldvision.org forward slash carry. Now, a lot of churches have experienced stability in giving over the last year. By the way, we're going to get into giving um, a little bit in this episode. And that's some of the best news that the team at Generis has heard during the pandemic. But the question is, when will the shoe drop? I mean, what's happening with inflation? 2021 going to be a stable? Uh, will giving begin to trend down? What's happening? I mean, we're missing a lot of people from the church, even on the return to church. So the truth is, whether it's next month, next year, or five years, something will shift. It's just part of the natural ebb and flow. Why not get prepared ahead of time? The team at Generis is offering a free opportunity for church leaders of this podcast to do exactly that with their Generosity Pulse Report. Think of the Generosity Pulse Report as a quick snapshot of your health for the culture of stewardship and giving that you have at your church. Wouldn't it be helpful to know where you stand, where your vulnerabilities are, what you need perhaps improvement on? And you can schedule your free Generosity Pulse Report today, an exclusive offer for listeners of this podcast All you need to do is go to generis.com forward slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com forward slash carry. And as always, carry is C-A-R-E-Y. With all that spelling done, let's jump into my conversation with Brett Hagler, the founder and CEO of New Story. Brett, welcome to the podcast. It's great to finally connect in this space rather than, uh, well, I've always enjoyed connecting with you, but good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Carrie.
0: Been a big fan and I've learned a lot from your guests. So it's an honor to be on with you.
1: Well, I've learned a lot from you. So we're, we're going to start like, you know, people say, what are you doing with your life? It's like, mm. you know, I don't know. I do a podcast. I write a book or so. You're 3D printing houses, which is insane. How, how, how did you ever come up with the idea of 3D printing a house? Well,
0: our mission at New Story is, we say, to pioneer solutions to end global homelessness. So we kind of start there. And um, for us, when we're trying to work on a problem that uh, is the size of about 1.6 billion people that don't have adequate housing, um, it's hard to wrap your head around uh, the size of that that problem. Um, we just believe that you have to take you know, big swings and you have to try things that um, if they work, have a chance to be a breakthrough, and uh, and knowing that there's a risk, and most of them will not work, but what if it actually does? And mm-hmm. so we kind of start with that framework um, of how do we work on things and invest time and invest budget uh, into calculated risk that um, you know if it works, it's not going to be a incremental change or a little bit better or a linear improvement um, ideally it's a it's an outsized return and change and can completely change um, you know the cost of housing or the speed of housing or the quality of housing and we're very interested in in taking bets on on those projects because if one of them works then we're able to you know impact exponentially more people than if we just kind of stuck to the the safer status quo way of working so that's a little bit of framing of how we think about uh the problem that we're solving and uh, and that's kind of our mindset um, and so we do a lot of other things aside from 3D printing houses um I think if you you know Amazon's a good example of um, people ask what is what is Amazon right and they have All these different product lines and businesses, and it really comes down to their core principles, which is, uh, you know, I don't want to butcher it, but it's really around, you know, customer obsession, uh, inventing, and long term thinking, right, and they're applying those principles to whether it's, uh, you know, the e-commerce site or their delivery or, you know, AWS now, you name it. And we like to think of ourselves as having um, core principles around innovation and long-term thinking. And then we're able to apply those to, um, you know, in this case, 3D printing houses uh, for the poor.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so we're going to drill down on that more. But give us the, for for leaders who may be new to what you're doing at News Story, can you give us the elevator pitch, the 60-second pitch? It's Like, here's what we do. Here's why we exist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, New Story is a nonprofit that uh, pioneers solutions to end global homelessness. It started about um, six years ago in 2015. Um, It was my 25th birthday. Mm. Started after a trip that uh, I took to Haiti um, with my best friend, Mike Garietta, who's been on your podcast before. Um, We saw the problem, wanted to do something about it, and really wanted to uh, try to do it, try to do things differently. And so, we had a uh, a blank slate um, of being young and entrepreneurial and ambitious and really wanted to um, to start something that would be different than a traditional nonprofit. And that's actually why it's called New Story. It's because we wanted to create a new story in uh, not only the families we're able to partner with and help, but really a new story in how we think about um, a more modern, refreshed kind of next generation of of charity and so that's that's how it got started and uh we work with families that are in extreme poverty that do not have adequate housing and we're able to partner with them to to build homes and communities and now almost small cities um throughout uh, haiti el salvador and mexico and all of our homes are about six to ten thousand dollars um and you know since starting in 2015 uh, we went from, and we're, I know we're going to get into a little bit of the entrepreneurial journey, but we went from nothing, you know, zero dollars, no connections to now, um, if things go the way we hope this year, uh, over $80 million raised since then, and uh, hopefully, you know, close to 4,000 uh, 4, different homes.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. So we, we connected before South by Southwest 2019, but you and I met there and you said, hey, Carrie, you got to go see this. Like, I'll show you a 3D printed home. So you know my brain not very big all right i'm like i don't know what is that like i had this picture of a printer i had like cardboard in mind it's like but seriously it's a house i would live in like it is it is yeah. it is beautiful it's modest but it's actually you have design principles in there so the 3d printer and we toured your factory at the time too uh and then saw the model house at south by in 2019 I mean, it's basically poured concrete walls done by this massive 3D printer. So can you paint a picture for people like me who just couldn't even imagine what a 3D print, like, you know, you see you see on YouTube, people are 3D printing guns or, you know, whatever. I'm like, I don't even know how that works. But then you see a house and it's like inhabitable and it keeps you out of the rain and it's nice and it's, it's actually quite attractive. Yeah. Like, can you just walk us through that process? Because that was brain bending for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you were there in 2018 at South by Southwest. Um, and this was the first house in the US that was 3d printed. Um, this was in partnership with uh, our partner icon. Um, and that was the, the facility that you toured. And that was that was the first attempt and, um, you know, it, honestly, it worked better than a lot of us thought it would. And right. uh, we were just, um, you know, it passed the the housing code. Uh, it was the first permitted 3D printed home in the United States. And that was really a kind of launching pad for um, for kind of the next next phase in our evolution, which um, we just finished. New story uh, 3D printing um, a neighborhood in rural Mexico. Uh, well, we actually did this before the pandemic happened, and then we, you know, had to fin- we had to take a big pause, and we just finished more recently. Um, and there's an Apple TV documentary about that. If people are curious and oh, cool. how it works, or how I would describe it to um, to to somebody that's not as familiar, um, it is a proprietary cement mix that's coming out of uh, a machine that's like a gantry style machine. And the, the mix is coming out almost like soft-serve ice cream. It's kind of what the consistency looks like. And it starts at the very bottom, and it does one layer – that is about, you know, an an inch and a half thick, depending on on how we're doing it. And then it will just do uh, entire layers to the very top of the home. And so whatever the the CAD file is of the house or the house design, uh, the machine is just is just doing what it's told. And it's it's layering um, the exact specifics of the interior and exterior walls uh, from the very bottom up to the top. And uh, that's, that's how it works.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. So the printer actually, to me, looked like a giant construction crane, almost. Like a big beam across it. And then the printer kind of moved around on a track and did what it was told. But I mean, you've got windows in the house. Like if if you see the finished product, you would be like, how did you build this? It's like, I don't know. It looks like concrete house that people put together. But you get the economies of scale. I mean, your first one cost you a ridiculous amount of money. But the idea is you can pop them out now once okay. you've got the technology for a few thousand dollars as opposed to tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. But it really looks like and what, what's the square footage on the units that you're producing? They can now? range
0: anywhere from on the very low end, um, you know, around 500 square feet. And now, uh, you know, our partner Icon is doing, they're doing homes that are, uh, I believe, over a thousand square feet um, with larger ones to come. So New Story, we specifically focus uh, uh, internationally and we work with families that are in extreme poverty um, that are living on really a couple of dollars a day. So the homes that we do are much smaller. They're between 500 to 650 square feet, um, couple couple rooms in the home, uh, a bedroom, a shower, clean running water, electricity, uh, and it's a long-term built to last uh, asset. So it's it's a great product for the price point. And uh, it's something that, you know, we're, we're very excited about scaling out.
1: Yeah. And, and if people are saying, wow, that sounds really small. If you haven't done a missions oh, yeah. trip like you did in Haiti, or I've been to Guatemala, Nicaragua many times to work with the Mayan people there. I mean, no, 500 square feet is huge. When you when you see what they are living in and how they accommodate, it's it's a pretty cool solution. Yeah.
0: And especially if you go from, you know, the families we work with, uh, they they literally do not have life's most basic human needs. Like right? running they water, like a have, stove. They do not have clean mm-hmm. water. They do not have safety and shelter, right? And most don't have um, uh, good a good supply of food. Yeah. So... It's, it's a black and white life-changing difference that that they not only the home but the water and the electricity um, and the cleanliness can provide. and that just unlocks so much potential um, for for folks to earn income, improve their education, improve their health. Um, it's a very long list. So that's what we get excited about. And you know we like we love bringing innovation to the people that need it most. Because what usually happens is people that need innovation most will be the ones to get it last. And we have structured our organization where we want to be out on the forefront, and we want to um, and we want to take calculated risk, right? And uh, the last thing I'll say about the three D printing project um, in the early days when we were trying to figure out, do we take this risk, right? Do we do we put in time? Do we put in R and D money uh, when most likely it's it's not going to work, right? It's definitely mm. not going but what if it actually did work and we and we kind of you know extrapolated that out and we got to the point for our mission to say we actually think it's irresponsible for us not to try it mm. and playing it safe and hitting the easy button and not taking the risk that's that's irresponsible because if this does work there's a chance that we can impact that many more families and so that's how we made our decision. And uh yeah, we we say irresponsible not to try is a mantra. And we have another mantra that it's it's crazy until it's not, mm-hmm. right? When you have these ideas in the beginning, you know, a lot of people are gonna tell you that you're that you're crazy. And that's actually a good sign because that means you're on to something. Right. And then if it works, well, then everybody's gonna congratulate you, then there's gonna be an apple. TV documentary, there's going to be all this press, there's going to be all this excitement. And, um, and that's why we say it's great, it's crazy until it's not. So what I would challenge the listeners with is, uh, it doesn't have to be on, you know, as big of a scale as that, or something that's, you know, shiny or sexy or exciting. But what are you doing that, you know, would be crazy until it's not. And mm-hmm. hopefully, you have a few things on your list. Or, or you can put those on your list as priorities that that would be just that.
1: That's such a good challenge because I wanted to ask you about the big swings, right? You, you could have done a lot of things with your life. You could have done a lot of things with News Story. And you're right. I always think incremental change gets you incremental results, right? So we're going to tweak this or we'll do a slightly better version than, you know, pick your favorite charity is doing. And you're like, nah. We're gonna three D print houses. We're gonna we're gonna go into places others aren't. Try things that could spectacularly fail. Um, what have you learned about that big swing? Because there's a lot of leaders right now who are like, you know, um, what what could go horribly wrong? And it's like, well, nothing, because we played it so safe. Like we're we're slightly innovating. Yes, we took our church online. Yes, we took our business online. But that's the biggest innovation. And that's not really innovation. That's adaptation, right? So I would say probably there's a lot of leaders listening right now who are like, yeah, we're not innovating. Mm -hmm. Talk us through the psychology of starting new story and figuring out, okay, we're going to swing big. We're going to go for the fences. And if we die, we die trying.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I'll say is we used, like I still think that we're very, wise and calculated in our decisions. Mm. Right. So I'm never going to do anything that this is not my style. Right. Maybe it's Elon Musk style or somebody else's, but like, I'm never going to bet the whole company on something. Right. Right. Like, at least I don't think so. Maybe at one point there's that conviction, but you know, you need to be calculated in your, in your risk profile but there ideally needs to be a a real risk profile, right? Mm-hmm. Because without the risk, you're not going to get the outsized returns. And as a leader, you can do that. You can set you can set your budget, right? You can think what's I what's the line item in my budget for R and D and innovation this year, right? And if it's probably very small, you could increase that very easily, you know, closer to ten percent or above. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it doesn't work, it's not going to sink. The organization, it's not going to sink the church, right? It's not, it's not. Um, you're not betting at all on that, right? Uh, so I'll just preface with that, and then as far as the mindset, uh, I think this has probably been our differentiator or or my differentiator, where there's a lot of things that I do not have whatsoever, um, a lot of weaknesses, a lot of things that other founders and CEOs or leaders are so much better at. Um, but the thing that that I think we've done and I've done is we have not been afraid uh, to be bold, to dream big and aim high. And what I've learned is that bold ideas attract bold people, Mm. right? You set a bold goal. And when you set, when you have bold ambition, that has to be genuine. It has to be real. You need to be called to it, right? It attracts the right people that want to be part of that, right? It attracts the kind of talent that want to come work there. It attracts the kind of investors or donors or supporters or brand partners that want to get behind you. And you have to have that bold vision to attract the bold people and the bold resources. And so I think we've done that. And it's not like you have to have all these qualifications to do it. It's 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 somewhat of a choice, right? I mean, I think you you do have to start small. I don't think you can, yeah. you know, one day you just, you know, announce we're going, you know, something insane or crazy, you kind of have to have to build your way up. But that's how to answer your question that was in our DNA from the beginning was being bold, taking big swings, being vulnerable, putting ourselves out there. And, you know, we eventually caught momentum and momentum begets momentum. And that's how we started attracting really great talent, um, really great uh, philanthropic funders, because that was that was who we were. That was our DNA. And that's Mm -hmm. how we got into um, White Combinator um, as
1: well. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go next. We're going to talk about attracting bold donors because that's something a lot of leaders are trying to do. It's like, I need a partner. I, I need to raise money for what we're doing, that kind of thing. But let's let's do I was so excited when I was doing research for this, because I didn't know that you were part of Y Combinator. But that is like this mythic startup thing for young leaders in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. And you also got to work with Paul Graham, who is legendary in Silicon Valley. Talk us through that. How did you end up in Y Combinator?
0: Well, I'll preface it by saying, because what I'm going to say after this, it sounds fancy. So what I want to preface it by saying is that uh, you know i definitely consider myself the same the same way now but even before i was very much an underdog i did not come from a prestigious background whatsoever i didn't have a, i didn't go to a fancy school i had a failed startup before i applied i started a new story when i was you know 24 about to turn 25 and so i didn't come from a any kind of fancy background with all these accolades And then when I got to Y Combinator, I definitely felt for the first time, you know, extreme imposter syndrome and really felt like, whoa, I'm in a whole new league. And, um, you know, that motivated me. And I think from a from a there's a whole other side of that from a faith perspective, that was amazing. But I'll preface it by saying that. And for those that aren't familiar with Y Combinator, Yeah, it's regarded as um, by far the world's top startup accelerator and and venture capital um, fund. And so for those that don't know, um, they've produced companies such as Airbnb, um, DoorDash, and Coinbase, which is about to go public. Coinbase is one of the largest IPOs since Facebook. And Coinbase, which is a cryptocurrency, um, uh, basically you're able to to buy cryptocurrency on on the Coinbase um, platform. Uh, Right now, the valuation of that company, and I don't know when this will come out, so it may change, but it's more than Goldman Sachs. And and they were started 10 years ago. And we went through the program about six years ago. And when we applied, um, there was almost 10,000 startups from around the world that applied. Yeah, it's they, a
1: nasty competition there. I mean, yeah, to even it, get a hearing at Y Combinator is extraordinary.
0: Yeah, yeah. They say it's harder to get in than um, Harvard, Navy, and uh, Harvard, uh, Stanford, and the Navy SEALs combined. And so, anyways, we got in. It, we were one of the first nonprofits um, to go through the program. Uh, there was a lot of bold prayer that I think helped, but. There was also um, just extraordinary preparation. You know, they have an infamous um, interview where you, if you get to the final interview phase, they only invite, uh, I think for us, it was about 300 companies out of 10,000. Mm-hmm. And they invited 300 companies to Mountain View. They fly people from all over the world, Brazil, China, India, all, all over the US, Canada. And you only have 10 minutes for the interview, Kerry. And what we did, which has become a mantra kind of at news story, and I think why we got in with my co-founders, is we prepared well over a hundred hours for ten minutes. Wow. and that was kind of the uh the underdogness, and I just believe that you know preparation begets confidence. How did and you prepare just what you know, did, what did
1: you do for those oh ten gosh, minutes? gosh
0: we had a, we had a we we could kind of figure out like. What were the questions you can ask alumni that have gone through when you know kind of the questions they're going to ask? And there was different blogs online. There were, you know, all types of um, forms of they, they were like all these little fake games with um, Paul Graham's kind of head on it. And he would ask questions and you would have, you know, 10 seconds to answer. So um, we just we prepared and practiced like crazy. And when we got there, um, we were really confident and we did really well. And, um, and so that was, you know, one of the reasons that, that we got in and, uh, but to get to your, back to your point of, you know, going for the fences, we made ourselves very vulnerable, right? Because we knew that doing all of this, there was still pretty much a less than 1% chance we were going to get in. Right. But we were the ones that said, Hey, despite that, we're still truly going to give it our all. Like we were going to leave it out in the field knowing that, you know, close to a 99% chance we weren't going to get in. And we still put in all that effort and and we got in. And that really changed the trajectory of a new story um, because we were one of the first nonprofits uh, to go through the program. uh, And we learned the exact same principles that, you know, Airbnb was learning a couple of years before us, um, Coinbase, DoorDash, Dropbox, um, other multi-billion dollar startups now. We were learning the exact same principles. And the best part about the program was, it wasn't like, oh, these are the nonprofit or the charity people. Like, let's put them in a separate group and have them think about things differently. Yeah, we'll make it
1: easier for you guys.
0: (laughs) It was literally like the exact same thing, right? You got, you're held to the exact same standard. And, and that was always what I wanted it to be like, right? That's why, you know, again, going back to why we called it new story, I, I didn't. I was frustrated that I and I was entrepreneurial before New story. I would look at some tech companies or startups, and I would see a certain standard, um, a certain uh, you know level of talent, um, a certain level of uh, innovation, and you know all these things that got me excited. And then I would look at some traditional nonprofits, and it just felt so different. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be this way, right? I mean, you're up against significant challenges. Um, for sure just because that the industry has somewhat gone stale in that regard right um but I think there's a great opportunity to to shake it up and so mm. uh, we we learned from from the best of the best and uh and I have i have a, a couple principles I could share with you that that we learned yeah totally yeah so the the big value of going through the program which was the summer of 2015 it was about a three month program. You're there in person. And I mean, it's the most you'll ever work in three months, right? It's, it's not sustainable, but it's like, you're all out for three months. And a couple, once you're accepted,
1: you go in there and it's an incubator, right? Where you learn, what are you learning while you're in Y Combinator?
0: You're, you're learning how to basically go from a really good idea with maybe a couple customers to, you know, getting your first, um, it could be your first thousand customers. It could be your first, you know, million dollars in revenue. It's how are you really getting off, getting off the ground? Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay. you know, Airbnb okay. went through when they, um, you know, they were still in credit card debt, right? Like <laughs> yeah, they, there's
1: a famous story about uh, Obama flakes and all that stuff yeah. that, uh, that they'll yeah. tell. Yeah. That's right.
0: And so one of the stories they told us, which I think definitely applies still now and to leaders listening, um, well, a principle is uh, do things that don't scale, which is very counterintuitive, right? Because in the early days, most people think, oh, I have to engineer this so that it's um, you know perfectly scalable and and you try to figure all of that out and that can really paralyze you and it can stop you from getting started. Right. And so what um, what Airbnb did was they figured out, okay, if we um, in the early days, if we use professional photography to take, you know, photos of inside our homes, that has a much better conversion rate. Right. Well, instead of Airbnb hiring, you know, this big team and figuring out all these things out, their founders would literally fly from San Francisco to New York and themselves would take photos, right, of inside the homes, right, which is the most unscalable thing to fly yeah. from San Francisco to New York. What you were doing is you're proving that this is something people want and this is working. And then you, of course, hire some, you know, contractors for photography, et cetera, right? What news story, go ahead, sorry.
1: No, I was going to say, I didn't realize that do things that won't scale is actually wide Combinator value i I'd, I'd heard mm-hmm. that for many years. So that was yeah. my next question. What did you guys do? What did you do that didn't scale?
0: Well, the first thing we did was um, our our entire um we had a crowdfunding platform in the beginning. So you could directly the the donor could directly connect with the family on our crowdfunding site, right? So you could see their picture, see their story. And there was like a crowdfunding meter and you know everybody's familiar with crowdfunding but we wanted it to look like it was our own platform right it wasn't we weren't using gofundme or somebody else your own well to build your own crowdfunding platform with code and everything takes time and is expensive and we didn't have time and we didn't have money so we basically just made a bunch of different um like screenshots that were landing pages and every time somebody donated they clicked a button And there was no automation on the back end. We would go in and update a screenshot to make the meter move uh, a little bit whenever there was a donation. And we would manually change the amount of money that was um, being donated to that family. So the whole website was done that way. But what it proved was people wanted to directly connect with families, right? It proved that we could get donations. We got our first like almost, almost a hundred houses funded that way, way. uh, which is a whole village.
1: Yeah. And you're manually updating the progress bar every single time. That's
0: right. We had our founders had to carry our computers with us everywhere we went so we could update it. And sometimes people would, would call and be like, Hey, I just donated $500. I didn't see the meter move. Like what happened? And we would say, well, Sometimes credit card processing takes a few hours. We promise it'll be updated, you know, which was true. We weren't doing, like, we were, we were getting the donations, right? Mm-hmm. It was just uh, the interface we were using, we were doing manually. And, and so that was one thing that, of course, doesn't scale, right? But, it, but we very quickly got it off the ground, got traction, proved this was something people want. It's one of the ways we got into White Combinator was doing that, right? So that was one thing we did. And the other thing we did was we really wanted people to have an amazing donor experience with us. Mm. And there was this phrase they taught us at White Comity that it's better to have a thousand people love you than a million people kind of like you.
1: Mm.
0: And so what we would do for as long as we could, at the end of every day, my two co-founders and I, Matthew and Alexandria, we would, whoever donated that day, we would send personal videos to them at every at the end of every single day, just saying, wow. You know, hey Carrie, thanks so much. Like, these are the co-founders of News Story. We're so grateful for your donation. Um, You know, and a short video, but it made it very personal. And dude, people told their friends about it. They put it online. Um, So again, one of the most unscalable things, but it really you know helped get our first thousand people that that really love the mission and love News Story. So, those were two two examples. And the last one I'll share, which is a different mantra. Um, really around kind of uh, one of the one of the, the best things White Combinator does is they force you to think so much bigger than you thought was possible. Hmm. Right. And so um, and so what they made us do was uh, when we got to White Combinator um, at the end of your three months, every company has to have one metric that they are going to aim for. And they ask you to set that metric. It could be could be revenue it could be you know users whatever it might be right and we and they say come to us and make it as ambitious as you possibly can and so we sat around and we ended up saying okay in three months for us to do 50 houses in three months would be like insane because before that we had done like 10 and it would be like insane and they're like great you're gonna do 100 And so we we they they made us you know in a second where we already thought we were thinking so big, they doubled that, which at first felt seemingly impossible. But what it did is it it changed how the the only way we could do 100 houses and basically 100 days that was the campaign we ran was we had to think about we had to approach it differently, right? We had to talk to different people, Mm. we had to go after different press, and so it forced you to say okay if I had to hit this goal, like, if I had to, what do I need to do?
1: It breaks all and we ended systems, up doing, right? Yeah.
0: And we ended up doing over 100 homes. Um, and it formed a value that we have at New Story that we say, uh, think big, break down, execute. And so we really try to stretch ourselves of how are we thinking big? And then let's reverse engineer that um, to what needs to happen. And then let's, you know, be the best we can at at executing. So- those are a couple of the stories. And, um, and then I have a good story with, uh, with Paul Graham as well.
1: Okay. Yeah. I do want to talk about that. Was Paul in the 10-minute interview or was that someone else from Y Combinator? No.
0: no they have other, they have a few other partners. Okay, Before um, we get to Paul so- then,
1: can I ask you, can you give us an example of the kind of question they'd ask you in the 10-minute interview? You prepared 100 hours for this. What would be either actual or typical kind of question you yeah. would get in that 10 minutes?
0: So I'm a CEO. I have two co-founders. If Brett died tomorrow, who takes over the company? Hmm. Right, that'd be a question. Um, how does this get to? Uh, how does this get to a billion-dollar company um, within five years?
1: Oh yeah, that's cool. And then you right. can't do like the eight-minute tap no. dance. No, how, how, how long you are, are your you answers?
0: Answer like less than fifteen seconds. Whoa. Yeah. So you kind of know, like you kind of know what they're going to somewhat know what they're going to ask. And so you just need to really be prepared with your answers. It's
1: like lightning round.
0: Yeah. So we ended up meeting. um, So Paul Graham was one of the founders with his wife, Jessica Livingston. Can you give a quick
1: bio for Paul for people who may not know why he's so legendary? Yeah. I mean, he's
0: now arguably, um, I mean, it, it, there there's a there's a list of some amazing investors but he's arguably the best early stage investor in the history of of startups or venture capital right especially what's happened now like all these companies that are coming out now um why coming has only been around for i think like maybe 15 years like it's still really early and so all these companies that are now going public airbnb doordash um Stripe, like these are going to be massive companies over the next decade. And so many of them were started out of White Combinator. And and Paul was the one that that picked them. Like he had the, you know, he's the best picker of of talent and of companies that have a chance to become, you know, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar companies that will literally change the world. Hmm. And and it's happened. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, like yeah. over and over and over and over again. And so um so that's a little, and then he ha- he also has, which I would I would highly recommend. Um, he has a great blog of essays that um just if you just Google Paul Graham essays um that are all about startup thinking, mindsets, principles, lessons that uh you know, a lot of folks in kind of the entrepreneurial um world, they all they read, they learn, and so he's he's, he's great. great. Um the best. Yeah. And when we got there, um Paul just ret- he had just retired full time and uh and so, but still involved and um and we got we basically got one meeting with him and and obviously we're super nervous mm. uh had a you know had everything we had like our website, and exactly where we wanted to like take him through the website and show him and get his advice. And as soon as we started, he just grabs my co-founder's computer and is like, let me look. And he just starts going through and just like ripping everything apart. Right. Just like <laughs> like destroying it. And destroying you. Yeah, just destroyed it. Make this simpler. This is too slick. Come on, you guys could write better. Um, so he's just he's just pushing you to be better right <laughs> and, and at the end of it which was all very valid great advice that of course we did uh at the end of him giving that that kind of direct feedback he also said oh and you know here's a check for you know five houses which was a lot of money so <laughs> um that was that was awesome and uh you know i think one of one of the last thing i'll say about um er, uh, about white commenter and paul graham was paul graham was really great and still is obviously amazing at he really pushes you to think not like 10 times bigger, but like a hundred times or even a thousand times bigger. And, uh, and he has the, he has the ability to um, overcome the, Obstacles and challenges that many people would get caught up on, right? So for uh, for Airbnb or or for Coinbase, right? People would say, "Oh, there's so many regulatory problems and there's so many issues. Like, come on, like that's just going to be the biggest pain. Like, there's no way they could do that. Um, they're just a small startup. He has the ability. Like, he knows that's real, but he has the ability to block that out and just think, no. What if the founder's vision actually?" comes real, right? And, um, you know, what if Airbnb actually is the largest hospitality company in the world? And what mm-hmm. would it take to get there? And like, I know, there's going to be all these crazy challenges, but he's able to see that. And, um, you know, for us, I remember him just asking, like, this is when we only were working in Haiti, we've now expanded, you know, wh- what would it take to just how is everybody in Haiti, and like telling us, like, make a plan for that, you know, and like, there's just not that many people that that push you to, to think that way.
1: That is fascinating. Where do you think if you hadn't been through Y Combinator, what do you think new story would have become or where would you be now?
0: I, yeah, I, abs- I absolutely, um, I just have so much gratitude for, for Y Combinator and the network there. Um, I think, you know, my mindset was if we get in, we're going to make the most of the opportunity and and we did, right? And we we did with our work ethic, with um getting our network of supporters that were mostly in, you know, the venture capital or tech world. That's how mm-hmm. we got off to our start. Um and where we be today, I think we would just be probably a few years probably a few years behind. Um, that'd be my guess. Like, you know, for the numbers we're at today, it'd probably be like two and a half, three years behind. Um, my guess. So, so I still think
1: But it's a big accelerator.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was just the DNA of it was was so amazing.
1: Brett, I'm looking at your advisors, your board. You have the co-founder of Reddit, the CEO of Glassdoor, Scott Harrison of Charity Water, the co-founder, one of the co-founders of Kiva um, on your board or advisory team. What have been some keys to developing and nurturing relationships at that level? Mm Mm-hmm. So I want to tell one,
0: one quick story yeah. about, uh, about Scott, Scott and Vic Harrison, and then, um, hopefully they'll let us share it. I haven't shared this publicly, but, um, so actually Scott Harrison's now an advisor and Vic Harrison, his wife, who was a creative director and co-founder of charity water is on our formal board of directors. So okay. they play a significant role in, in new story and they're amazing. Um, but you know, just, a, an early story, um, I. I had a startup before news story that basically that failed, Hmm. but that startup, um, led me to, uh, to Haiti and also forming a small partnership with charity water, which is how, which is how I met Scott and Dick and, and kind of, um, they definitely had influence on me. Right. And, um, after the first startup failed, uh, before starting news story, I actually was thinking about going and working for charity water and potentially Hmm. working with Scott and, um, And it got down to kind of like the final 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 round and uh in my head i was pretty convinced i had the job and uh and i got a no at the last minute and when that happened i was young i was 23 24. Mm -hmm. Um, you know looking back was definitely way too experienced for the role um but when i got the no I mean, I remember being so devastated yeah. uh, because I thought this is why my first startup failed. This is a great opportunity to, you know, work for and learn from an, an incredible le- leader and mentor and role model. And um, and I was just so devastated. And I remember uh, the first thing I did was I just got on my knees and I just cried out to God. And I was like, I have no clue why this is happening. Um, it is horrible, but I'm going to trust that, that you have something else in mind that that could be better, and uh, a new story started. You know, about four months after that. Wow. So, it's just an encouragement to folks that you know sometimes when you feel like you've really got knocked down or something really didn't go the way that you planned, um, if you persevere and have faith, uh, you never know how the dots can connect, and you can only connect the dots looking back. So. Um, anyways, now, That's a but now we story. have an amazing friendship. We have an amazing friendship. Uh, on our advisory board, Fix on our former board of directors. We love charity water. So it's cool how, how everything kind of worked out. Um, but as far as our other, you know, some of our other supporters and folks that are on our advisory board or team, um, I would, I would break it down in a couple ways. Uh, Carrie, I would say, um, to start, I, I really wanted to focus on kind of the tech and venture capital world. Um, we've expanded now. It's not the only place people should learn from, right? But kind of being in San Francisco, being going through white common I wanted to focus there. And so one is just like having a niche that you can really build relationships in and uh, build some kind of brand or credibility in, mm-hmm. right? And so by having that niche, these different founders or executives or CEOs, they kind of, or venture capitalists, they knew the other folks that were involved, right? And so it was really easy when I said, hey, these folks are involved or they could refer me to somebody else. Um, it was a niche that they were familiar with. And so, you know, we started really small, but then we built momentum because we focused so much on that niche. So that would be the first thing is, you know, find a niche. The second thing was um, I became an an kind of before new story already was but i became even more of an obsessive learner um in kind of the the startup and the tech industry so i could speak their language i would they would tell me the same way that other for profit founders could speak their language right and so it was very just kind of from the inside out like i loved it i was learning from it and i could i could really speak their language um and that came from just the books, what I was learning, um, who I was learning from. And so that learning posture really helped. Um, the next thing would be I, because of that, I was able to talk to them like a peer, right? And I think sometimes a, ch- a charity, whether you're a, you know, a charity or a church leader, um, it, you could easily fall into, uh, trying to come off as, as humble. Obviously humility is super important, but, um, you really knew you would have confidence and talk like a peer, right? From founder to founder or CEO to CEO. Um, I think that uh, brought just, you know, they respected that. Um and well, then and I would you'd done I, the
1: homework, right? You'd listen to the podcast, you read the books, you'd been to totally. the events, you took notes.
0: Yeah, totally. And then I would also, I remember we would have um every now and then there'd be a moment um where I knew I'd have a chance to maybe speak for. 30 seconds or 60 seconds, right, in front of a crowd or an audience or at a dinner. And this is how actually we got to um, one of our board members now, Robert Homan, who's uh, the founder and CEO of Glassdoor. Um, so there was a, a gathering at um, the former CEO of DocuSign's Home. Um, I was invited uh, because I I knew this gentleman named Keith Kroc, uh, really through through my best friend, Mike Arietta. And anyways, I knew that he would make everybody go around and give, like, a 60-second intro, right? And so instead of just kind of laying it up and kind of being lame and being like, hey, I'm Brett. Like, I work at a charity that builds houses. I I ended up practicing – an impersonation of the DocuSign um, CEO at the time named Keith. And I would practice, 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 practice before, um, hoping that it would come off funny because I had done it a couple other times with him. Uh, I knew that he knew it was He he blessed it. He thought it was fine. It was cool to do. And so I would get up and kind of do this impersonation where I'm not really like a funny guy whatsoever. Um, (laughs) but it was, it was like, it was a kind of vulnerable, risky thing to do to get up in front of all of these very accomplished leaders and CEOs and try something like that. Right. And I was able to, I guess, somewhat pull it off. And, you know, people would come up to me after and be like, dude, that was funny. Like, that was great. Like, (laughs) let's get coffee. And, and, and Robert Homan, who's the founder of Glassdoor was one of those. Right. So I think, I don't know, the lesson is just like, make the most of the opportunities and try things that make you vulnerable and that are risky, but have a chance to get someone's attention um, in a different way. So, and obviously (laughs) impersonating people isn't the way to do that. I've kind of retired from that, but just an example of, to answer your question of, how did some of these folks in the beginning get involved with us?
1: What did you learn from your failed startup? You mentioned the no from Charity Water, but you, you look back at that in almost every leader, myself included, have had some stumbles. What, what, what was your failed startup and what did you learn from it?
0: Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was an online e-commerce uh, startup. And uh, we were trying to kind of like curate different brands that were hard to find. And the value prop was we would show somebody a new jean or shirt that they didn't know about yet, but they wish they knew about. And then we would give a percentage of that to, uh, to two charities that we were working with. One of those charities was Charity Water. Um, another, but this is all very small. Like we were not a big contributor or anything. And then another charity was one in Haiti. And, uh, and we ended up wanting to go to Haiti to see the charity in person because we were going to be giving back a little bit of the money we're making to the charity. And when I got to Haiti, that's how I was exposed to the problem that News story was solving. Right. And so I never in a million years thought that's what I would be doing, you know, in my early twenties, um, right around that time, uh, right before going to Haiti and starting the, the first startup, um, is when I personally had, uh, just a revived faith and i made a mm-hmm. kind of total 180 from that standpoint um which was which, which really changed everything from a values and heart standpoint of taking a lot of the selfish ambition that i had before and you know trying to trying to use that for for some better purposes that i felt i was called to um and so during that first startup i learned so many lessons of what not to do. Um, <laughs> we ended up, we ended up basically um, failing. we were able to give back some of the venture capital money we raised, um, so it wasn't a total failure on paper. It was almost like a break even. But Carrie, I learned so much from age 22 to 24, even though it was a failure. That there's no way I could have learned that anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. I learned how to how to raise venture capital. I learned how to try to start up. Uh, strike up partnerships with really, you know, credible people, and I had to put a pitch deck together for that. I had to be in the room pitching, you know, these leaders and CEOs. And so, um, while I don't think that the business idea was definitely not great, and I think the business idea was somewhat forced, that would be a lesson is like don't force something. I think I was so excited just to just to start something and be entrepreneurial that I think we kind of forced the idea, like the idea wasn't that Mm. strong and and we we shut down. Um, But the benefits were it put me in certain rooms and situations where I was also forced to figure things out that I would have never had to figure out if I was more so at, you know, a regular job or at a regular company. Right. And so it, it definitely sharpened me. Um, It, uh, it grew me a lot as, as a young leader and, um, and it kind of, God connected the dots to where that failed startup ended up being the reason why um, my new story was created.
1: One of the other things that amazes me about news stories, you go onto your page, you look at your team, everyone's young, everyone's dynamic. Like every, there's a talent war. I know we just went through whatever 2020 was, but there's a talent war on. How do you, how do you find attract and keep bright young leaders? So with attracting, uh, one, I would say we, are.
0: first of all, we are, we are trying to mature in our, uh, yeah, everyone's our age too young. You need so. a couple of older folks. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I've learned there is, um, there is significant value in bringing on, you know, experienced folks and, um, and that can happen in the early stages, but, you know, for us, we're kind of trying to go now from about 40 people to, you know, maybe being closer to, uh, you know, 90 or hundred in the next two years. Right. So, so it's, It's time to bring on some people that are much more experienced. So I'll preface by saying experienced people are amazing and are super important, right? Um, In the beginning, and we'll still have a lot of young talent. uh, We did start with a lot of young talent and I think in attracting them, um, it kind of goes back to a little bit of what I was saying before that uh, bold ideas attract bold people. Mm -hmm. And so I think the more unashamed you could be and have clarity in where you're going and why and clarity on the kinds of people that work here whether that's a manifesto or an ethos or your values uh we just were we were unashamed to just say the what we wanted and the kinds of people that news story is for and so that that repels a lot of people and it's not to say it's right or wrong it's just they may not want that, right? Yeah. But but by having clarity and really putting it out there, you will attract the kind of people that that you're that you're sharing, right? So mm-hmm. that's the first thing in a, in attracting that we've learned is uh, have clarity, be bold. Um, the second thing is to you get to decide. You know, do you want to have uh, we call it a high talent density, right? And do you want to have a standard where you're trying to recruit really top talent? Right mm-hmm. so there are there are of course trade offs com- that come with that right you're yeah. going to be um, you're going to be paying people more you're going to be expected to have you know certain benefits like there's going to be there are trade offs that come with that but we decided pretty early on that we wanted to attract very talented people that if they wanted to they could be working at some of these other great you know startups or or tech companies right? And that was kind of always my mindset or a filter um, was, does this person have the competency and some of the same drive that some of his or her other peers have at some of the companies I was mentioning before, right? And so, and it's not to say everybody doesn't have to come from a you know a tech or startup background. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but I wanted to ideally have um, the same kind of persona of a person that would join one of those companies and when you get like-minded people into the culture into the team um you know one one thing we've learned by being such a you know a mission-driven organization where we we help we help the extreme poor right that's what we Mm do um what i've learned is whether it's a church or whether it's a a nonprofit with a great mission is there are i mean tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of great missions around the world right and so it's obviously somebody, need, they need to be attract, very attracted and very passionate about your mission, but that's not going to be the th- keep. That's not going to be the main thing that keeps and retains people. If that's the only thing,
1: right? If your selling mm-hmm. point is
0: we're changing people's lives, we're, you know, doing like, that's oh, awesome. pay crappy and Ian, right? have a
1: terrible culture and you know, all those things. Exactly. It's not going to work.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like, Uh, Really good, especially young talent, they want to be around people that are going to sharpen them and make them better. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we like, they want to be stretched. And it's not to say like we, we actually do have a, a, a health, a very healthy like work life balance, right? It's not to say, hey, you need to work, you know, 60, 70, 80 plus hour weeks. It's not that. It's when you're here and when you're working. We are going. We're intentionally going to challenge you and stretch you, and we want you to have some of the most growth-oriented years of your career hmm. while you're with us here, right? And so that is attracting the kind of person that wants that, right? And then we have to do our job of then, okay, well, we want to bring in great manager training. We want to bring in, you know, resources that are going to help these people grow. grow but that's on. Some of the attraction side that, that we've learned. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, one of the things that we prioritized from the very beginning, like from the from the first year, the first summer of News Story was our culture and our team. And uh, and the amount of investment that comes through an allocation of time and budget that goes into our culture and our team is significantly high, right? It's a big investment, but I think there's no greater investment for the return you get. What right? does that so look ROI,
1: like? How do you do that?
0: Well, well, for us, the ROI is um the number of people that we can impact, right? So it's if 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 we're investing into recruiting great people, into creating a culture that they love, that is um, that is helping them grow, that is stretching them, then because they're very talented and they have, you know, high competence and they're they're growing; their output is going to be that much better than if we did not invest as much into that person and into mm. the culture, right? So for us, it's it's really our annual goals and our and the progress that we're making um, is is the return that we get to see. And when people talk about, hey, how do I be more, you know, innovative? Which we may talk about later. The the number one reply that I give is, you need to have a culture that attracts and retains people that have competence to innovate and be creative. And, and, and that, when you make those investments, then you get, you know, we've seen really great returns. I think the most strategic thing that I can do as a leader to set up new story where I want to go this next decade, which is, we think pretty bold is um, is create one of the best cultures and attract the best talent in the world. Like that's, that's a that's a lofty goal, but like if we get that right, then we're in a better position to do all the other things to accomplish our mission and impact more people.
1: Oh, you know what? I feel like this is round one. We're going to have to have you back just to unpack it because uh, we could double-click on so many of these answers and take it down. I want to cover a couple of other subjects, probably rather briefly.
0: There's different challenges and trade-offs, right? So if you want to have, we've learned that it's not going to be, it's not going to be perfect. You're going to have, um, you know, what we call, uh, it's better to have false positives than false negatives. So we'd rather take a chance on somebody and maybe not have it work out, uh, then, you know, not, not take a chance in that person and, uh, and miss out on somebody that could have really great mm. potential. So it's, it won't be perfect it has growing pains especially if it's a younger team um which means you need to supplement that with great management um and then they also a younger team there's usually going to be there's going to be more turn, turnover over time right and i think it's just the reality some people are going to want to go to business schools some people are earlier in their lives and they may have a change of heart for what kind of industry they're going to be in so there's certainly trade-offs but um yeah, we have we we started off with a young team and now we want to, to balance that out.
1: Okay, I feel like that's its own podcast episode. So I'm going to put yeah. a pin in that for the future. Um, sure. Okay, we talked a lot about innovation. Almost every leader wants to innovate or knows, you know what, I should. So let's talk about general principles. And then because we have a lot of people who are invested in the church, I want you to specifically speak to the church as well. But let's start macro. Anybody like restaurants have had to innovate or should be innovating. Gyms have had to, small businesses that have been slammed by the pandemic. Charities, I've talked to a number of people who are executive directors of charities. There's like, the model just isn't working anymore. If they need to innovate, what, what are some principles that can really help?
0: The first thing I would encourage folks with is, is encouraging you that innovation is a choice. It's not, you don't have to be Elon Musk. You don't have to be some brilliant MIT grad. You don't have to have this, you know, impressive background of all these exciting innovations. I really do think it's a choice. And if you're a leader, you can be intentional about the goals you're setting, how you're allocating your budget, right? What what amount of your budget is going towards trying something new or being creative or R&D or innovation, right? Like, your budget so much is, is actually your business, right? And so you get to decide how you're going to allocate that. And then you also get to decide who are you going to hire, right? So if you're somebody that maybe doesn't think of yourself as, you know, the most innovative person, that's fine. There's a lot of great CEOs that are not that right. Um, but if they want to be if they want to bring, uh, if they want to have a more innovative culture, they know they need to bring on somebody that is and so you could hire a really great, you know, whether it's somebody on your executive team or maybe a VP or somebody younger. And you have the like you can do that. Right. So that's the first thing I would say, Carrie, is it's a choice. It doesn't have to be mystified that, you know, innovation and creativity is this thing for, you know, us. A, a, a select few I just I really don't think that because that wasn't me and it's a lot not a lot of my peers it's just we've we've made choices um to do that so that'd be the first thing I'd say the second thing is you have to have the guts to try something knowing that it might not work right like you have to have the guts and the vulnerability to actually try it and to think through not just not all the things that could go wrong, right? Is that an important exercise? Of course, and you need to be calculated and you need to think through what are the challenges, what are the obstacles, where are the roadblocks? Sometimes those are gonna be too strong and you shouldn't do it, right? But you really need to think through with your leadership team, what if this idea actually works, right? Mm -hmm. And do we have the guts to take a step and and, and try it, right, and make our best effort? Um, And so that's the other thing I would say is so many people just don't, have the guts to, to just, to just try something. And so I would encourage you uh, to do that. And then, um, and then the other thing, this is a little little bit more, if you're, if you're at a church, um, I would say, you know, make the, make the most, it doesn't have to be at a church. It could be at a nonprofit. It could be at a restaurant, try to figure out who in your network or your audience or your Your base of customers or donors um, is more entrepreneurial and is more innovative and bring them into the process, Mm. right? Invite them in, um, you know, pay them. You probably don't have to pay them, but, you know, invite them in and say, Hey, would you work with us once a month? Put together an advisory board or council of folks that, you know, love coming to your restaurant and you kind of know are in, you know, whatever the more innovative field is or that are at your church or that are supporting your nonprofit and ask them for help. Um, I think that's another thing that everybody could do, right? It just requires, so trying good. it requires knowing that it, you may not do it perfect. You may not know exactly what to say, but just be, be real and put yourself out there and try it. And so those things of, it's a choice. Um, you can set the budget, you can set who you hire, you can set your strategy. It's your choice. Um, it, uh, it have the guts to try it, and then be shameless and asking for help. Mm. I remember Brian Chesky, who's the founder of of Airbnb and CEO. Uh, one of the things he said to us when he came and talked to um, uh, a White commenter was, "He's like, I'm shameless in asking for help. I'll ask the best people around me I know for help. And uh, if you're in any you know kind of role of leadership at, especially if it's a a, a charity or a church, or if you've been struggling." People want to help. And so you need to identify who are the good people that can help. And then you need to ask them, call them, email them, write them letters. They, I promise you they will give you their time, but you have to be intentional about it.
1: You know, I think that's so good because it involves humility. And I mean, it was Jim Collins who famously said 20 years ago, right, that is a level five leader. It's like, yeah, you got all the skills, but you also have the humility to go. I don't know or what can I learn from you? Like there's somebody I hired a performance coach. He's like, "You can learn something from everybody." What do you totally. what do you want to learn, right? Because often we get ourselves into these towers. It's like, "Oh, I I'm I'm supposed to be the expert. I'm supposed to know." It's like, "I don't know." Like, what would you say? Cuz it's yeah. definitely round one. I want to bring you back <laughs> in the future. We can we can go a lot deeper on some of these things, Brett. It's been so so good. But um, there are people leading organizations with a young Brett on staff, sitting in the back row at a church. You know, they're a member of your organization, they're a patron, they're a client. What would you say, like looking back on your life, what would you say to those leaders? It's like, here's what you do if there's someone like me with some entrepreneurial zeal in them. What do we do with with folks like you to engage their potential? Mm-hmm.
0: I actually think this is one of um I mean if I was running a church or if I was on the board of a church I think this is one of truly one of the best opportunities you can have um to engage with your existing uh younger audience um, it doesn't have to be younger but it would probably skew more younger and also people that are outside of the church as well right and I just think entrepreneurship and creativity from a from a faith perspective like as Christians that is it's so the creative process there's so much beauty in it that as a leader you can direct how how people are treated your employees how products are made how innovation is created with a a redemptive frame and a redemptive lens like these are things that are so important as as believers and i think there's a massive opportunity for the church and for church leaders to um to, to engage you know more folks that are interested in entrepreneurship but i'd also say that right now entrepreneurship has never been cooler right yeah. it is something that young people love and whether it's you know starting a company or now you have the creator economy right where you can make you know your own videos and your own um you know uh yeah video shows whether it's on youtube or patreon or tiktok like like entrepreneurship and being a creator for yourself is is on the rise, is as cool and as attractive as it's ever been. And in my opinion, it's only going to get stronger this decade. And so why not, as a church, help cultivate that, right? And help create resources that um, young people – not I keep saying young. Anybody in your audience um, can learn from and be attracted to and also people outside of your church. So a few practical things that that I would recommend that I would do. Um, One, I mean you could – you could start some kind of program inside the church that connects uh, mentors and mentees together, right? Hey, if you care about entrepreneurship or creating, uh, we can set up that program, right? And you could probably have, if you don't have enough um, uh, bandwidth on your staff, you could probably have a volunteer set that up, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a program where you can connect mentors and mentor these. The second thing I would do is I would um, create some type of like mini series and it doesn't have to be on Sundays. It could be like a three week series uh, you know, at the church or somewhere else where you're inviting uh, whether it's a guest entrepreneurial speaker, or maybe you have one person kind of run the program and then you're, you're just inviting people from, from your uh, congregation or from the community at large to come learn about entrepreneurship and to also meet other people that are interested in entrepreneurship or a more creative or different path. That's, no, that's how I good. met one of my that's co-founders. Good. I met one of my co-founders at a, a social entrepreneurship meetup, right? Like, And I was I was going to, I don't mean this in any of the wrong way because I absolutely love this church and it changed my life. Um, I was going to Buckhead Church, mm-hmm. right? And I still go to Buckhead Church. Love it. It's an amazing organization um, in Atlanta. And I was just thinking like, there are so many people in the audience here that probably care about entrepreneurship or are excited and want to connect with others that are believers that also care about that. So you could create a, you know, multi-week series and just try it out. Have somebody run it that's entrepreneurial where people can come and learn about entrepreneurship and also meet other people, right? Mm. So that's the thing I would do. And the last thing is, uh, you know, I would maybe create some type of, some type of just simple library of resources and content, right? And, And that could be, you know, certain videos, books, podcasts um, where somebody in your congregation could, could go to um, if they want to, if they want to learn and improve. Um, So those are some of the easy things that I think anybody could do and you could just start small, right. And give it a shot. And I would just think of myself back in the day when I was, you know, 22, 23, obsessed with learning of entrepreneurship, wanting to connect to other people. If the church could have provided That kind of outlet, like I would have been, I would have loved it. I would have been Mm. so and excited. I would have invited, you know, some of my friends. And I think that a lot of churches have that opportunity. And then there, I have other ideas that I think you go even further. um, But we could save those uh, for for another time. And so,
1: yeah, maybe Carrie, I'm kind of incredible. Well, I am. I am gonna have you back. Uh, And to to let's do a sneak peek. What's one thing you're working on right now that like feels like that hundred X, thousand X, like, I don't even know we can, whether we can pull this off.
0: I mean, right now, the first quarter have basically been putting a plan together of how do we, how do we raise a billion dollars, you know, in a, in a relatively short time frame, not in a year or a couple of years, but, but a real plan. Um, to do that uh, before the end of this decade and how do we um, how do we house over a million people which would be about 250,000 homes probably making us one of the largest home builders Um, and how do we create the most effective system in the world to house people in poverty that we prove it and then we prove that system with the innovation with the software with how families will pay back some of that house. And um, it's a long list of how we do that. And then how do we allow other governments and organizations around the world replicate a system that we've proven at scale for how to house a million people in poverty. So those are some things that I'm working on right now and also really working on, um, we're hiring. So News Stories hiring a good amount this year and we're trying to uh, recruit some, some awesome people. So mm-hmm. those are two things. That, that we're working on. How did you set that goal? How do we set the goal? Well, yeah, we, um. so it's hard sometimes when you're, when you're working on such a massive problem, you can, you can get paralyzed and you can think like, I've got to figure out how to do this for 1.6 billion people in 10 years. Right. And the reality is at some point it breaks, right? There's a mm-hmm. difference between trying to go to the moon or trying to go to the Mars and trying to go to a galaxy that, you know, is far, far beyond far away. Room. Yeah. Right. Like it's just at some point, you know, you got to be, you got to do, you do need to be re- some, somewhat realistic. Right. And so when you have such a massive problem, um, you know, sometimes you can get caught up in the TAM or the total addressable market of that problem. And what, and what we wanted to do was we said, okay, yes, of course, like in our lifetime, we want to help as many po- many people as possible, hopefully hundreds of millions, which I think is possible, right? But to start, how do we set a really focused goal geographically, the price point of the home, uh, where the partners are, how we're going to do repayments? And so we had a mantra um, really heading into 2021 and beyond from a strategy standpoint that- focus will set you free right and we were talking about do we work in the us do we work in africa do we do this do we get into government policy like there's there's so many different ways to attack the problem and we got clarity that um, success to us was focusing on creating the most effective system to house a million people in poverty and we wow. need to house a million people um, in latin america specifically most will be in 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 mexico And, uh, and in doing that, we want to prove a model that then can be replicated by others to house millions elsewhere. So the main thing we have to do is focus on being best in the world at that and, and say no to everything else. So, and then we just, you know, we picked trying to do that before 2030, um, as kind of your, you mentioned Jim Collins, big Jim Collins Mm -hmm. fan. Like that's, that's our hat You know, it's not, that's not the end. That's not the end, but it's a really great rally, rally cry and milestone to get to. And if we can get there, then there's a lot of opportunities beyond that.
1: Well, I had high hopes for this conversation. You uh, blew past them all. So thank you so much, Brett. People want to learn more about your news story. Where can they go? Uh, I'm pretty active on
0: Twitter. So my Twitter is just uh, Brett Hagler. And then new stories URL is newsstorycharity.org. We're, we're hiring a lot right now, and of course, there's ways to get involved um, philanthropically as well, which you can see on the website or reach out to me. And if you're if you're a church leader, um, I don't know, Carrie, maybe we do a a webinar or something. I would love to to talk more about entrepreneurship inside your church mm-hmm. and what are some ways that you could get started. Um, the last uh, plug I'll make is for um, an organization called Praxis. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of Carry, but I went through practice as well um, after Y Combinator. And it was one of the best things I've ever. It's also a it's an incubator, it's a fellowship. And um, and they are on the leading edge of uh, they call it redemptive entrepreneurship, which is um, entrepreneurship through the lens of a believer um, in a redemptive way. And they have a really high standard. Um, they do excellent work and they have excellent resources. Um, that you could go to and, and learn from as well or or bring into your church. So that's well, all I got for now.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more there, Brett. We'd
0: love to connect with anybody. So um, just reach out and see how we could
1: help. That was just fascinating at about a hundred different levels. And uh, yeah, I love having my mind blown by like, I, I kept trying to get my head around 3D printing. Like, I mean, I've seen know I, I haven't done any 3D printing, but when I actually saw a house 3D D printed and then we toured the factory. It was just insane. And I love that kind of innovation. In fact, in the What I'm Thinking About segment, I'm going to talk about ways to kill your innovation. Um, I can do it very easily. And so just a short clip at the very end of this podcast. In the meantime, if you want show notes, you can go to Carrienewhoff.com forward slash episode 419. We have free transcripts there and we get to do all this because of our partners and we pick them very, very carefully. If you haven't yet checked out what World Vision has for you, Check out their new free series with Danielle Strickland by going to worldvision.org forward slash carry and um, get ready for the future, whatever it holds, by getting your free Generosity Pulse report today. An exclusive offer for listeners of this show. Go to generis, dot scom forward slash carry. Next episode, my good friend Mark Clark is back. We have been working on a big project and we talk about, well the art of better reaching. It's getting harder and harder. And you know this, like churches are down on average about 28% year over year this year in terms of attendance. And that's over pandemic levels. Yeah. So there's been a bit of a leak. How do you reach new people when the culture is changing so quickly? Here's an excerpt from a conversation Mark and I did. Like, can you in an informed way be able to defend the ideas of Christianity in the marketplace of conversation? And so we want wow. people to be able to be able to defend faith and actually think like that, not just go, well, I got my little Bible study. I take my little Instagram photo. I think biblically and that's all I do. It's like, no, you know, people in the world have questions. Can you answer any of those questions? And that's next time on the podcast. So you can subscribe for free, get it all automatically. And uh, just thanks for your partnership and all this and for sharing on social. So grateful for you. A lot of guests coming up, subscribers. We have Allison Fallon just did that interview. It is so amazing. Pete Scazzaro is back. Steve Carter, Louis Giglio, Juliette Funt. Uh, who else have we got? We've got Greg McEwen, just hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Anthony O'Neill, Ed Stetzer, so much more. And if you subscribe, you don't have to worry about it. I only listen to the podcast I tend to subscribe to. So uh, if you haven't done that, you just stumbled on it, you can do that. And uh, we're just so glad to have you as part of the tribe. And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And innovation can be a challenge for all leaders. It's very easy, particularly when you get past the early struggle of like starting up a company, starting up a church to find a pattern, set it, forget it, and fall into a an ultimately fatal or flat rhythm. So how do you end up sabotaging your innovation? I want to leave you with a couple of ideas. One thing is to try to find normal quickly. Now, that's really important, okay? You got to have a stable base. But uh, for example, in the, the moment we're in as a culture, if you think of this, what happened in the last year and a half is just an interruption, not a disruption. I think that can be a problem because the world is changing rapidly. And if you're just like, no, I'm going to go back to a set pattern. That was an interruption, not a disruption. I think you can pay a price for that down the road. If the current crisis is a disruption, leaders who see it as an interruption should be prepared to be further disrupted. I think that's a good rule. The industry, so many industries, including, and you heard Simon Sinek talk about that on this show, or you will shortly. I forget whether that episode is aired, actually, as I record this. Uh, He says the church is ripe for disruption in a good way to really advance the mission. So think about that. Um, Number two, settle for the changes you've made so far. Change is hard. And it's tiring. And so you made some changes. You probably got some new things on deck for 2021. Maybe you're thinking about a few changes for next year. And then you're like, okay, we've arrived. Let's just set it and forget it. That can be a mistake. Just because you found something that works doesn't mean you found what works best. And just because you've made progress doesn't mean you've realized your potential. Number three, and this is a huge one, particularly right now in this moment, let your fatigue make the decision for you. Yep, you're tired. Everybody is tired. But my fatigue is a terrible decision maker. And sometimes I've made decisions out of exhaustion. It's just, it's too much. I just can't handle it. And that's why self-care, which we talk about it a lot, is so important. It's just so important to take care of yourself. If if self-care is important back in the old days, it's 10 times more important in where we are right now. So don't let your fatigue, make decisions for you. The final one's kind of interesting. We talked about this a lot. It was a theme in the interview with Brett is stop disrupting yourself. Okay, Disruptions happen all the time. You don't need a global crisis. You don't need a pandemic. You don't need a weird economy. You don't need instability to be disrupted. Uh, companies get disrupted all the time. You know, 100 years ago, it was carriage makers were in trouble because the car got invented. Uh, about de- a decade ago, You run a hotel chain, all of a sudden this little upstart, that bunch of broke college grads couldn't pay their rent, decide to rent out an air mattress for $80, and Airbnb is born. The best leaders do not wait for circumstances to disrupt them. They decide to disrupt themselves. And here's the hard truth. I have to remind myself of this too. Leading a church, that was true. Now leading this company, that's true. I either disrupt myself or I get disrupted. So why not disrupt yourself? I think that's hard in the moment, but it's so much easier long-term. Disrupt yourself or be disrupted. Hopefully that was helpful. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. We'll catch you next time here on the Leadership Podcast. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.